Welcome to Sound Practice, the business podcast for physicians and healthcare leaders, hosted by Cheryl Toth and Mike Sakopoulos, and produced by the American Association for Physician Leadership. Tothy, you're certainly more technologically savvy than I am. Where did your background in healthcare and technology come from? Oh, well, I was an early adopter, I guess you could say, in the early 90s. Uh, I was on if any of our listeners are old enough to remember America Online, AOL. I was on AOL as a member, like there were maybe 500,000 people on it. So I just always really thought it was cool. And then in the late 90s, I developed a course called yourmedicalpractice.com that I taught to physicians nationwide and tried to get them to use the technology. So, oh, and then I participated in writing a book called eHealthcare that came out in 2000. So I guess it started as an interest and uh, went from there. Oh, what a technological guru. And look, <laughs> well, I, I asked you this, Tothi, because the issue of technology and healthcare is really the focus of uh, today's uh, podcast and, and our guest. Right. Well, you're speaking with Dr. Mark Ringel, and he's the author of Digital Healing. He also has a healthcare and technology blog, and uh, he's a real thought leader, Dr. Ringel. Oh, yeah, that that he is, Tothi. Uh I'm sure that our listeners will enjoy learning from Dr. Ringel, but before we get to his interview. Yes. What do we have to do? Word of the show. There you go. Yes. All right. My turn. You got to tell me, what do you have for me today, Toby? Okay. Octothorpe. Wait, not Octomom. Octothorpe. <laughs> this is the official name for what we all know and refer to as the hashtag, but the official Ooh, okay. That symbol, the official word, is Octothorpe. Okay, definitely counts as a tech word. Well played, Tothi. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. Um, and on that positive and technologically uplifting note, let's move into your interview with Dr. Mark Ringel. I would like to welcome our guest to Sound Practice. Dr. Mark Ringel started his career practicing medicine with the National Health Service in Yuma, Colorado. He has been heavily involved over his career in continuing medical education and currently is an advisor to HealthStream. He is the author of Digital Healing, which is an exceptional book. And he also writes an absolutely phenomenal blog that I highly recommend, and we will put links to all of this book and, and blog into our, our show notes. Dr. Ringel is certainly a national thought leader in this area, and it is my pleasure and honor to welcome him to Sound Practice. Thanks for taking time to, uh, to speak with us. Well, thank you, Mike, for that uh, lovely introduction. Let's jump right in because we've got a lot of interesting things to, to talk about. And I noticed when I was trying to prepare for our time together, that of all things, you were a, that you majored in philosophy in college, and, and certainly that's a typical major for pre-med students. Tell me how philosophy informed your approach to medicine. I've never regretted having majored in philosophy. Uh, what uh, I learned uh, studying philosophy is that uh, is to look at, at an argument or a position and say, where did that person? Where, where did that? Where does that come from? Where does it start? We know that even in pure mathematics, you always start out with postulates. You always start out with, with your basic axioms. And then you, and so I learned to look at arguments from where they started. Uh, 
And it's, and especially that was interesting to me in science because there's certainly, you know, we just take as a matter of course that uh, the scientific worldview um, tells us everything that's, re that's, that's, that's real, worth knowing about the world. That's the only way that we get um, uh, reliable information. And um, in fact, uh, as anybody who's practiced medicine or law or anything knows, you can't reduce it all to you can't reduce it all to science and to numbers, um, and so I became very interested in what questions science doesn't answer very well and which ones it does, and why, and that was my passion. That and also consciousness and where does that come from? But that's another long story, um, and so I wound up as a practicing physician every day dealing with those very issues. You know, I was trained scientifically, but my goodness, a large share of what I did every day was not very amenable to science or certainly wasn't based on firm conclusions, uh, but was feeling my way along. And I'm, I'm sure that feeling your way along comes with, with treating patients. And that brings me to my, my next question, that studies are showing approximately 15% of patients are admitting to withholding information from their providers because they believe that the information will not be kept confidential. Uh, when every week brings another notice of a data breach, as a provider, how do you give confidence to your, your patients that their information will be kept securely? That's a good one. Um, most of all, it comes to them trusting me uh, and by the transitive property, the systems that I use. It has to do with the relationship with them. And then frankly, you know, I can't say that I have the, the uh, uh, that I can give them absolute security. Um, I can say, you know, when you quote this 15% of patients withholding information because they're afraid it's not gonna be confidential, it's that, that there's gonna be a data breach. Uh, virtually everybody withholds something anyway. I learned long ago that when you fly a small airplane, a charter plane, or, uh, you know, with maybe six or eight passengers, and they ask you for your weight and they weigh your luggage because they want to balance, and, and they routinely add 10 or 20% to, to the weight that everybody gives them. So I, I really think that this is a problem. It's also, um, you know, it's a technical one. I'm a physician, and I have to say, I'm, I'm purchasing the best I can, uh, contracting with the best I can, and um, you know, we'll do our best. Let's um, let's talk about some new new technologies. Apps and wearable technologies are opening up some new possibilities for both patients and and providers. I know you spend a lot of time thinking about the intersection of technology and, and medicine. Where will these technologies take medicine in years to come? I've uh, told many a patient, don't ever trust a doctor uh, who can't say, I don't know. Um, so with that, with that opening, um, at this point, I think there's a, a whole lot of hype and nobody really knows to do what to do with these data anyway. Um, not to mention that the quality of the data uh, are not very good at all. Um, I just heard a presentation actually yesterday from the University of Colorado from their ethics, uh, bioethics uh, program there. And with, uh, uh, and, and one of the things that they stressed was the difference between the vetting of medical devices 
versus the vetting of what's uh, out in the public. Um, there's the whole issue of um, our love of quantification. And if we have these numbers and that's what it's really about, uh, well, that certainly is very, very important, but these are not good data right now. Um, and even when we have them, uh, what do you do with knowing what somebody, uh, you might catch an arrhythmia and that's very important, of course, but knowing what somebody's pulse is moment to moment over the course of 24 hours, nobody really knows. Um, so I think that there's some promise with this, but there's a whole lot of hype. And even when, uh, and then there's the problem of the electronic medical record and you get these big data dumps uh, from, from the remote devices. And how does that get incorporated? How does it get summarized? Um, so uh, I remember when we were back with paper records and uh, I was delivering babies and we would get uh, the uh, record of a uh, fetal monitor. And that was with these big paper strips and somebody would roll it all up and tape it into the and tape it into the chart. Nobody ever looked at it again. But these were data that we were supposed to have, and nobody knew what to do with them. But but everybody was afraid to get rid of them. Um, uh, so the 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 quick answer is, who knows where it's going? I don't think we figured it out. You speak about electronic medical records, and that kind of leads me into my my next uh, question. Um, that the legal system and the healthcare system both place responsibility of medical records, uh, creation and maintenance of them upon the, the provider. And certainly blockchain technology offers possibility of placing the patient at the hub of his or her medical uh, records. Mm -hmm. Do you think it's a good thing? Well, whether it's block, I, I, blockchain technology is also something that's in its, it's still in its infancy really. And, uh, you know, one of the concerning things about it is just how, how um, energy intensive it is to run all of those machines, to run all those codes um, in order, in order to create and maintain a system. Um, it, it would be doable. It's not a technological question. It would be doable with, with a well-designed, a cloud system with good pointers to where the records are. It's a much bigger problem that the EMRs themselves don't talk to each other. And uh, they, they, don't, they don't have, there are data standards and there's the new fire standard and so on. But um, if, the, it, uh, if, the, if the data are, are hard to um, compile, uh, that's not of very much use. The whole issue of, and, and you're an attorney, so you certainly understand the issue of um, who does the record belong to um, by, uh, and I don't know and understand the law of this, if this is common law or if it's actually um, you know, codified, but um, our assumption has always been that the record belongs to, who, to the provider who generated it, not to the patient. And so there are these little bits of stuff all over the place. Um, and, you know, every day you see problems with coordination of care and the right hand not knowing what the left hand, not to mention the uh, left and right feet and, you know, and so on, are doing. Um, the, the movement to opening records uh, to patients, which is, you know, which is gradually gaining, um, which is gradually gaining traction in this country at least having the patient be able to 
see and even comment on and certainly question what's in there. And there are, there are a set of issues around that too. Um, you know, like you have to learn not to use the word uh, morbidly obese um, in a record that the patient's gonna see um, is a step in that direction. We've always put the, uh, in, um, the default in our healthcare system has, to, has been to kind of paternalistic and it's been to put the responsibility uh, and the, and the um, focus on uh, the institutions and the providers, the physicians, uh, rather than really where it belongs, which is with the patient. And it's the patient's record. It's their story. If you've ever, uh, I remember actually, this was um, a malpractice case that I was asked to, to talk about. And it was a patient who'd been in some sort of a trauma. And so I got all the records from the hospital where he had been uh, taken after the accident. Um, crash. We're supposed to call them crashes now. Um, after the crash. You've been well-trained by counsel. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. And um, I read the admitting history and physical in the emergency room and the hospital doctor and several consultants' histories and physicals. Um, and they were either boilerplate or didn't agree. Um, patients need a history that they can correct um, and that goes with them, if nothing else, just a history uh, without all those other pieces. Very interesting. I, it's a short question, but it's one that, one that bothers me. Has technology diminished the art of medicine? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, one of the chapters in my book, and I think it's kind of the most important one, is called Data Versus Story. Um, in order to do healthcare, well, we have to do justice to both the patient's data and their story. The data is the scientific part. The story is the interpersonal part. Or I think it was Osler who said, um, don't ask what kind of disease the patient has. Ask what kind of patient has the disease. And technology, it's very easy to get lost in uh, lists in, in checklists, for example, of symptoms, which also helps billing. Um, and in fact, it also helps you remember things. I mean, I wouldn't get on an airplane with a, with, with a pilot who didn't believe in checklists, you know. On the other hand, in the process of doing that and in filling out these templates, where's the story? Who's the person? Even using paper templates in emergency, in a rural emergency room where I worked before, before we had EMRs, uh, and so it was an emergency room and they weren't always, they weren't patients I knew some of the time. Um, and when I would get the record, which was really good, uh, that I got it right away, unlike it used to be when you dictated something and, you know, it was kind of a crapshoot. Um, when you get it, uh, I'd get that and I'd look at, at it, look at all the boxes I checked and I would have a hard time remembering who the patient was. Um, so in technology, but can be terrific, for example, if it's, um, I don't have to fill my head with every time I, I uh, write a prescription and try to remember all the, you know, everything can cause everything, all the possible side effects. Not to mention if the patient's on five different drugs, the gazillion possible interactions or the differential diagnosis of a couple of symptoms, um, trying to remember all of those. And you can't remember them well enough. Well, having systems that can do that for you can free you to do what you do best as a human being, okay, which is to 
be with that person, to understand them, to understand the context, the cultural, the ethical, uh, the values, the, the subtleties of language and so on, that are also so important. Um, it doesn't mean at all not paying attention to the science, but if we remember that, that the best use of technology in healthcare is where it makes room for and assists the relationship between provider and patient, doctor and patient. Um, now, we have all kinds of examples. I mentioned the EMR, you know, uh, I remember when I, was, when I was teaching family practice residents and we'd be in OB and uh, the resident would walk in the room and not even think to, to acknowledge the patient laboring in the bed and walk right to the uh, fetal monitor and start looking at the strip. Well, there was technology that was in the way of the relationship. Mm. Um, so technology itself is a tool, that's it. And how you use that tool is, is what's most important. We're, we're certainly seeing lots of new technology being applied to, uh, to medicine. One of your, your uh, blog posts discussed uh, a digital version of a patient's heart being created for uh, simulations and, and, and problem solving, which I thought was, was fascinating. And certainly we're seeing cutting edge tech, technology like this. You talk a little bit about fears and hopes of such kind of cutting edge technology? Um, I have I have few fears about that. Um, I have great hopes. The uh, we get better. You know, science is about making models, and uh, and now these models, and with the aid of artificial intelligence, of of, of uh, machine learning, and so on, can greatly extend our power. It's sort of like um, the the uh, X ray or X ray of the twenty uh, first century or the uh, microscope what the microscope was, um, you know, in the, in the uh, 18th and 19th centuries. Um, so I, I, have nothing, I have nothing but hopes for this. Once again, if it doesn't get between patient and doctor, um, you know, if I, if I can't, if, here's another example. Um, it's actually for my mother when, when she was uh, very old and, and uh, had developed some ankle swelling, no history of heart disease at all. Um, and it was just ankle swelling. She had no other symptoms, no, no reason to suspect heart disease. And the doctor said, oh, you have ankle swelling and did uh, an echocardiogram. And um, I don't remember what else, but did a whole workup for congestive heart failure as opposed mm -hmm. to seeing her and talking to her and saying, you know, okay, let's try a little diuretic or whatever, or whatever would have been appropriate at the time. Um, if we say, no, I can't see you until I've made a model of you. And I, if, it, if it gets in the way of sitting down and saying, so how are you doing? Why are you here? Um, what's going on with your family? Um, then I worry about it. But this, it, the technology itself, I think is fabulous. Certainly technology now, and you've touched a little bit upon this earlier, is generating significant amounts of, of, of data. And the greater the, the data sets, the potential for greater benefit, and I would assume liability too. Should we be concerned about information overload for clinicians? Oh, we're there. We're there. I mean, we were there even before the, before the uh, electronic revolution. Um, you know, the model that I was taught in medical school was that you just had to cram everything into your head and try to remember it all. 
Um, so everybody always feels information overload. If anything, there's more. Um, a good example of that is the um, kind of um, alerts that are built into some automatic systems. Uh, and what they find is that, that still, if every time I write a prescription, if I get an alert, have you thought about this and this and this side effect, or how about this and this reaction? And if it's, it's the old thing of sensitivity and specificity. And if the sensitivity is too high, most doctors will just turn it off. Um, and if it's too low, uh, the attorneys uh, in the pra uh, who, who consult with the practice are, are going you know, to raise hell because what if you miss something? And they say, well, doctor, didn't you have a system that would have told you this? Mm. Um, and so this issue of how do you set alerts, and there's a lot of literature about that right now. Um, and uh, there aren't many very good solutions. There aren't really very good solutions to this yet. Um, you know, on the one hand, I really want good alerts to know when, when I need to know something. Um, and it can automate a whole lot of things so that I just don't have to remember them. Every time I, you know, a very simple example, every time uh, I order um, a, a transfusion to, to do a follow-up hematocrit uh, and, and see how the patient responded to that. Well, if I don't have to, if that's just in my order set that's, that's on the EMR, that's terrific. Um, so yeah, we're all overloaded. You have been involved in continuing medical education and training of residents. When, when you think of, of medical training and education, do you believe uh, proper attention is being given to the present and future roles of technology? Um, yes and no. Uh, well, I used to tell residents when they got into the third year of, of a family practice residency, you know, and they were looking at practice and say, well, how do I tell? How do I tell if it's a good practice? I'd say, look at the books in the doctor's offices. And if it's all uh, books that they got either from drug, drug detail people or uh, in medical school, you don't want to go to that practice. Well, I haven't bought a book in 20 years. Um, they, uh, the, 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 you know, young physicians now and older ones too have more information in their um, smartphones than I had in my whole than I had in my whole library, and it's right there in the room with the patient. So we don't have to train them much about information at point of care and about looking things up and know, you know, and, and, and working better. And there is some, there are some smarts built into the electronic medical records uh, that they use. Um, anything that's, that's really useful uh, will become transparent. I mean, it's just like, you know, the first time uh, a movie showed in Paris uh, and it was of a train pulling in a station, people got up and panicked and ran out of the room because they thought they were going to get run over. Um, and eventually, just like the telephone, you don't think twice, so I'm talking to you, or, or this video even, you know, I'm talking to you, we're actually in neighboring states, um, but uh, the, 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 the technology itself becomes transparent. And I think probably for the current generation, which I'm sorry I missed this, was portable ultrasound, mm. you know, um, because, you know, there's stuff they can look at uh, that I couldn't and that they can do just like that. And it's gonna be, it's another thing that they'll get trained in. Um, I think there's more on the other side of the training, which is don't get lost in the checklists or mm -hmm. look at the patient and talk to the patient before you look at the fetal monitor strip or whatever. It's more the attitude of how you do it. In my book, 
there are some there there's uh, some things that got from that I got from a uh, physician at the University of Chicago, a pediatrician, um, about how to sit, how to be in a room with a computer and a patient. Where do you put? Just how do you set up the chairs? Where do you put the Where do you put the monitor screen? And you know the you can use the monitor screen um, as another part of the interaction. You know, like. Um, um, a, a parent who's worried about the child isn't eating well. And you can call up the growth chart right there and say, look, your child must be eating well. Uh, has stayed in the 90th percentile all along since birth. So it's much more, it, it's like everything else, uh, especially since we can look things up now. It's not the fact so much, but how to use them and how to use them in the context with the patient. Well, that's what some would say is the new... Um definition of, of educated is not how much you know, but how well you can access information. That's right. Um, as you, you mentioned, uh, I'm in an in, in adjacent state. I'm a Hoosier here in Indiana. And one of my former governors used to say, I'm not sure I understand all that I know. Does that sentiment apply to technology's application to medicine? It, it's hard to know how, um, where the that fits, I can think of a number of ways. One of the ways is now that we're using artificial intelligence uh, to, to make decisions for us or to help us make decisions, um, the uh, computer learning itself is opaque. The, 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 in, the internal mechanism, the gears, uh, if you will, of, uh, so the program may come out with a recommendation, but we don't know how it got there. And for human beings, we still need reasons. Um, so I think that, that, you know, that's just one example. Um, when, um, when I would interview people who were or medical students who were interested in family medicine, uh, one of the things I would tell them, so for family medicine especially, um, the personality characteristic I think is most important for this, for especially this most general of, of, of specialties, um, is the ability to live with um, incomplete knowledge hmm. and not being sure. I mean, physicians are anyway, and we're, it scares lay people terribly to hear uh, how little we really know about so much of what we do. Um, but it's that attitude of that openness to, I'm always ready to learn. And the people I've admired most who've been my mentors have been people maybe in their late eighties who are still listening to me. Very nice. As we wrap up, Dr. Ringel, our audience on, on sound practice is heavily comprised of physician leaders. What advice do you have to these leaders in the age of COVID-19? Oh, I'm glad you asked that question because actually I'm involved in a, in a program now with uh, our Area Health Education Center back in Colorado um, where we're interviewing providers in rural Colorado during the trying to capture doing video a video archive and we've done about 75 and I've done a number of physicians um, and others I've done the interviews um, and the thing I think that is and it's interesting to see how it's changed since we started in March to, to what people sound like now. Uh, people really are burning out, uh, even if there hasn't been a whole lot in their community, just with the uncertainty, just with the constantly changing rules. Um, I say 
whatever you can do to support them. And that means, you know, of course, you have available, uh, you know, counseling and time off and everything else. But I think it's also really important, the social part of that is what can you do to maintain the social fabric of the medical staff? And especially since now people, you know, there's not a doctor's lounge. Um, it's, so you have to think about how do I, how do I keep, how do I facilitate people staying in touch and supporting each other um, in the course of this? Uh, you, you kind of, you can't give enough mono, monogrammed masks uh, to make up for that um, and water bottles and, you know, and, and, and whatever else. Um, so keep an eye out for, for people who are burning out and try to maintain some si sort of society, even among your scattered medical staff. Excellent advice. My guest has been Dr. Mark Ringel. He is the author of Digital Healing, an exceptional book that I, I highly recommend. Dr. Real, thank you for your time. Well, thank, thank you, uh, Mr. Sakopoulos. Oh, no, it's Mike. Okay, it's Mark. <laughs> I guess we're getting to that late, but uh, <laughs> thank you. It's, it's really been a pleasure, and you ask very good questions. Thank you so much. Mike, I enjoyed listening to Dr. Ringel, your interview with him. He is thoughtful and, I would say, exceedingly interesting. I would agree with that. His discussion of information overload and alarm fatigue, I think is very important. Oh, yes. And, you know, you asked me about healthcare technology and my involvement uh, before we you did the interview. And this is something that's been talked about a lot, this alarm fatigue and just mm. all the reams of information you have to pour through. So great, great thing for him to be talking about on our podcast today. And I also thought the discussion of cyber modeling um, of organs was fascinating. Who knew, Tothi? What a cool thing. I well, didn't know. I, I, <laughs> yeah. It was new to me. Yeah, it was good. <laughs> Color me naive. Look, uh, I really appreciate time with Dr. Ringel. And unfortunately, that brings us to the end of another episode of Sound Practice. I hope that everyone enjoyed our interview with Dr. Mark Ringel. If you did, please consider rating us on Apple Podcast or Google Play. Yes, we would like that very much, and it helps us out, helps other people find our podcast. And if you'd like to give us feedback directly or make a suggestion about the podcast, please email us at feedback at soundpractice.com. Please join us next time on Sound Practice. Don't forget, we release a new episode every other Wednesday. Bada bing, bada You've been listening to Sound Practice, the business podcast for physicians and healthcare leaders. Check out the show notes for this episode at soundpracticepodcast.com. If you have any suggestions for future episodes, we'd love to hear them. Email us at info at soundpracticepodcast.com. Subscribe to Sound Practice wherever you listen to podcasts so you can automatically receive our episodes. And please rate us and comment on the podcast in iTunes and Google Play. Sound Practice is presented and produced by the team at American Association for Physician Leadership. We are the world's premier organization for all aspects of physician leadership in every sector of healthcare. Learn more at physicianleaders.org.